is Camilla, and you're listening to the Cat's Whisker, a time machine for all those who love rock and roll and want to know everything about it. People, stories, and the music that changed the world. In a few words, it doesn't matter whether you've lived through those years or, just like me, you've always wondered what it was like. I have loads of stories to tell and great music to play. So, let's roll! Hello everyone! Welcome back to The Cat's Whisker. I'm Camilla and today we're going to talk about radios. Radios were essential for the development of rock and roll. And you may say, no shit, Sherlock, but let me expand. To understand why radios were so important, we have to ask ourselves, what did people use to listen to music? The first type of commercial radios started to spread in the 20s, and the cheapest device available was called crystal radio. They operated with a crystal detector, also called cat's whisker, wink wink, Oh my god, that sounded so lame. Anyway, moving on. They were actually cheaper than radios that used valves or tubes. They were massive, but needless to say, if you've ever seen one, the adjective portable probably hasn't crossed your mind. The batteries were very heavy, and since they were also very sensitive, constantly trying to move them from one place to another was very risky as the settings could change and you might end up losing your signal. Everything changes when transistor radios make their appearance. In 1954, Texas Instruments and Industrial Development Engineering Associates introduced into the market the first transistor radio. It was small, light and could fit into your pocket. That's what she said. Having your favorite music with you at all times just became real. If you will, this idea can be a foreshadowing of what smartphones will become in the future. Although, in my opinion, radios were way more exciting. So, where are we? Okay, the first transistor radio was called Regency TR1 and wasn't really the most exceptional radio ever, to be quite frank. The output volume wasn't really great, the noise levels were pretty high and it kept losing signal. It costed $49, which is nearly $540 today. So yeah, not a great deal. But in those exciting times, people bought them anyway. And this was good because the industry managed to bring new and improved models to the market quite rapidly. Also, one year later, in 1955, Chrysler and Philco announced the first all-transistor car radio. It was a very good idea because it weighed way less than passcard radios. And believe me, they used to weigh a ton. Philips in the 30s produced a radio that weighed 24 kilos, which is nearly four stones, and that took eight liters of space. Now I know that 24 kilos, if you consider the weight of a car, is not that much, but for a radio? so technically having an old transistor car radio was an amazing idea and in 1955 you could get it by paying an extra $150 which would be like $1600 today again the idea was good but the cost whew, that was absolutely crazy 
and that's why Chrysler, only a year after the big announcement, decides to opt for a hybrid radio made of transistor and low-voltage vacuum tubes. Everything will change again in 1963 when Becker introduces the Monte Carlo, a solid-state and tubeless car radio. So, mm, I don't know how to say it better than this. People listen to the radio a lot and everywhere. But let's go back to the beginning, because it wasn't always like that. After the war, televisions start to be the main center of attention for entertainment. Families gathered together to watch their favorite programs and who couldn't afford a television would just go to a local pub to get a glimpse of that new technological wonder. As we know, rock and roll was music made for teenagers. For all those young people that finally had enough money to buy records and wanted the freedom that their parents and grandparents had never had. And that's really interesting. Because right when radio was losing listeners to the wonders of television, rock and roll becomes the most exciting thing in the world. But here we need to make a very big distinction between white radios and black radios. White radios' target was the white middle-aged middle class that loved Pericomo and Doris Day. Very good artists, don't get me wrong, but not really what I would have listened to as a teenager. As we know, since the inventors of rock and roll were part of the African-American communities, rock and roll starts exactly there, on black radios. Now, there were tons of radios at the time. If you were a DJ, you could start out in very small rural radios and then climb your way up to bigger ones. The rock and roll was mainly a prerogative of lower-powered local radios at the beginning. WERD in Atlanta, Georgia was actually the first radio to be both owned and programmed by African Americans and started their transmissions in October 1949. WDIA in Memphis, where B.B. King was actually a DJ, had actually opened in 1947 and was very famous for black programming, but it was white-owned. And this actually touches upon a very interesting point. The fact that white people and entrepreneurs knew that this was going to be the music of the future, but oftentimes they saw it merely as a business. Rock and roll was not considered music for white radios at the beginning, but that didn't mean that white kids didn't want to listen to that music. They very much did, actually, especially after the film Blackboard Jungle that featured Rock Around the Clock, a rock and roll song by an all-white band, Bill Haley and the Comets. That's when white kids, that had probably had enough of radios broadcasting only music for their parents, decided to join the rock and roll movement. And I call it movement because rock and roll wasn't and will never be only a music genre. It ignited the hopes and dreams of a whole generation and propelled social change. It is impossible to think of the 50s and 60s without reminiscing all the amazing music that was around. The two things are one in my mind, and I'm sure I'm not the only one. So, what happens next? After Blackboard Jungle and the success of Rock Around the Clock, more and more white kids listen to rock and roll. And to avoid going under, many white radios in the US start broadcasting race records, aka rhythm and blues. Between the first to popularize the term rock and roll was probably also the biggest radio personality in rock and roll history, 
DJ Alan Freed. He started out in the 40s and was one of the first people to actually push for rhythm and blues to be played on white radios. He became more and more famous and managed to put rock and roll on a map pretty soon and was followed by an integrated audience. His show on a Cleveland radio was called The Moondog House and it was the first time a mass audience could listen to rock and roll. Freed promoted dances and concerts where like-minded people could meet and enjoy rock and roll together. One of the biggest events that is actually considered the very first rock and roll concert by many was the Moondog Coronation Ball, organized at the Cleveland Arena on March 21, 1952. And it was a disaster. I mean, it was the Fire Festival before the Fire Festival. Basically, there was room for 10,000 people, but an overwhelming 20,000 showed up, breaking down doors and forcing their way in. The police had to be involved and the show was shut down after a few songs. After this event, Fried's notoriety grew and grew and radios in New York started to notice him. So he decides to move there, where he could reach even a broader audience. This is a great time for rock and roll because this is, as we know, the moment when the revolution reaches a bigger scale. DJs were absolutely essential for record labels and again, no Sherlock, but wait because there's more to it and it's uh, quite interesting. When radios start broadcasting rhythm and blues, most of the hits were performed by black vocal groups. The music industry was silently taking notes, but instead of pushing these artists, the record labels decide to give the same songs to white vocal groups or solo artists that start selling more than the original performers. But luckily, there were DJs such as Dick Clark that refused to play white cover versions of black songs. For example, he would refuse to play Pat Boone's version of Tutti Frutti and prefer the original by Little Richard, a song that we all know and love. And as we know, soon after, rock and roll will become a music sensation around the whole world. The music industry knew that in order to get more attention from radios and get more space on shows, appealing to a white audience was Quite important, yeah, there was Bill Haley. But everything changes in 1956 in Memphis, Tennessee. After Elvis's song, That's Alright Mama, starts to circulate on Memphis's radio, most people didn't actually know who that voice belonged to. He is considered the first white performer to use black artist songs and turn them into hits all around the world. Many people actually accused him of stealing black music from black artists. This is a very big debate and maybe one day I'll talk about it. But it's worth remembering that in the beginning, people thought that they were listening to a black person. And you might think that pictures would have given the secret away. But it was the radio that announced that Elvis was white for the first time. Elvis was a guest on the famous radio program Red Hot and Blue, hosted by Dewey Phillips on WHBQ the same radio that broadcasted his first record. Phillips knew that his listeners were very curious about Elvis and so he decided to ask him which high school he had attended. And when he answered with the name of a white school, everyone around Memphis knew that something was about to change. How did they determine which songs to play? Which songs were hits? Requests, jukeboxes, sales for sheet music, dancehall favorites. I mean, it's very vague. 
People actually relied a lot on disc jockeys to know which records to buy, and even more so when at the beginning of the 50s, a man called Todd Stortz started making a list of the most played songs on jukeboxes every week. That would then help him decide which 40 songs to broadcast during his program on a Nebraska radio. The top 40 format was so successful that soon, radios all around the US and the world started using it. And even if the idea was great, as a wise person once said, more money, more problems. Since every time a DJ would recommend a record and play it, people would go out and buy it, especially if it was recommended by big and reliable voices like Alan Freed, it didn't take long before the payola scandal unfolded. So, what is it? Since DJs could massively influence music industry, record labels decided to tap into that market and bribe big radio personalities to get more airplay. So, I give you presents and money, you play my record and recommend it and everybody goes out to buy it. Doesn't really sound legal, right? Exactly. The police thought so too. Not only that, sometimes DJs would actually get writing credits and royalties on songs that they had never written without the consent of the original artist. A great example is the song Maybelline, Chuck Berry's first single, that in its first press saw Alan Freed getting credited alongside Berry. This actually led to a court case in 1955 that gave all the royalties back to Barry. Many of those DJs that were actually working on top 40 radios have been arrested in 1959. The most famous one? Alan Freed. The same man that made the term rock and roll famous for the first time and that helped with the spread of that music has also been the one incriminated for misleading the public and earning money on top of that. And he wasn't the only DJ, but was certainly the most memorable one because he has been extremely uncooperative. Well, if that's not a terrible way to end your career, I, I don't know what is. So when the official investigation starts, many radio stations decide to fire their DJs. In November 1959, over 335 jockeys declared in front of the US House Oversight Committee to have received money in exchange for airplay. Money that amounted to around $236,000, which today would correspond to over $2 million. The investigation was propelled by ASCAP, which stands for American Society of Composers, Authors and Publishers, aka the old-school music establishment that was made of old men that thought rock and roll and BMI Broadcast Music Incorporated, which represented most of the newcomers in the music industry, were Satan in the flesh. And obviously, BMI was clearly selling more than ASCAP, so there you go. I just want to say, don't get me wrong, getting money to play songs is illegal and horrendous. And as a listener, I would have felt deeply betrayed, but it is 100% sure that this is another example of all those attempts to stop rock and roll. But... It was just too big. That's what she said. Thank you for being with me. Don't worry, I'm gonna talk about radios a little bit more and even about radios in Europe and pirate radios. I really, really hope you enjoyed this episode. Please follow me on Instagram at the Cat's Whisker Podcast and on TikTok at the Cat's Whisker. 
There is loads of extra content about rock and roll 50s and 60s, so I'm sure you're going to like it. And until then, I'll see you next week. Ciao!